Welcome back to the Architecture Firm Marketing Podcast, a show where I speak to architects who have found success in their business, marketing, and communications, as well as consultants and experts who will share their unique tips and strategies to help you attract your ideal clients. I'm your host, Dave Sharp, marketing consultant for architects, and if you'd benefit from professional advice and guidance on your marketing, you can head to vanityprojects.com to check out my coaching services and book in a free 30-minute consultation to discuss your situation. This episode was sponsored by ArchiPro. ArchiPro showcases the best and latest in the architecture and building industry and helps to connect homeowners with trusted trade professionals and products that will suit their needs. For architects and designers, ArchiPro helps you to create a profile for your practice in a way that best expresses your brand and your work, and then it directly connects you with a niche audience of people on their architectural build or renovation journey. Many architects rely on word-of-mouth referrals or search engine traffic to find new clients, but it can be difficult to attract the people you really want to design for and work with. That's why ArchiPro helps clients to match their specific architectural taste and budget with the right architect or designer for their project. You can also use the platform throughout the design and build journey with your clients by directly sharing inspiration and sourcing products for your projects as well. So if you'd like to find out more about ArchiPro, visit www.archipro.com.au. Joining me on the show today is David Welsh, a director of Sydney-based practice Welsh and Major, who are known for their creative and rigorous approach to public, residential and commercial projects. David is also a prolific architectural writer and his words appear in the top architectural magazines on a regular basis. In this episode, we discussed how the studio was able to win their first public projects in the early years of the practice by reaching out to potential clients directly. We looked at why it's important to get comfortable talking about yourself, what you can do and what you want to do so that potential clients can keep you in mind for future projects. David shared his simple tips to help you find an interesting story within each of your projects and why storytelling and words can help you stand out from the crowd. And finally, we looked at the reasons behind Welsh and Major's recent rebrand, the costs involved and how the process helped them to notice and address weaknesses that have been holding back the practice. I hope you enjoy my conversation with David Welsh from Welsh and Major. David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me on the podcast. No worries. So it's very exciting to talk about Welsh and Major. Could you could you give us a, maybe a bit of a background on the studio, just in terms of size, what type of stuff you're working on, and I, I guess a little bit of a history of the practice as well. Yeah, well, uh, we've been going for a little while now. I think Chris Major and myself set the practice up way back in 2004. And we did that really on the back of working for on friends' houses and our own house. Since that time, we've gone through a quite a varied range of projects, childcare centres, cemetery buildings, residential buildings, public toilets, all sorts of things. And at the moment, there's uh, 12 of us in the studio and we're hoping to grow it a little bit uh, more in the very near future. I'm really interested in the cemeteries and toilet blocks and all that sort of public <laughs> work. You've dropped that out there and it's really interesting. So started the practice with Chris in 2004, doing sort of single residential private homes and that sort of thing. At what point did you start moving into the more public work? Yeah, when it was very early on and we were working on our own small uh, addition to a little semi in inner Western Sydney and doing similar projects for friends as well. It was 
By luck, I suppose, that one of our friends uh, bought a very, very old terrace house, 1845. And we, of course, entered that into the awards and everything, but rather than just put it into the usual residential category, we thought, well, this has this got some some far, it's, it's a bigger project than that in terms of its approach to our built heritage, our cultural heritage. So we put it in the heritage category of the awards and ended up winning the Greenway Award in the New South Wales chapter that year. And that, that little decision there opened us up to sort of being seen as a possibility to work in uh, aspects of architecture rather than, rather than just the single alts and ads residential projects. And then some smaller public projects with their heritage components started rolling in and then other uh, smaller public buildings started happening, toilet blocks, uh, things like that. And things just started to evolve from there. So the best part of 15 years later, actually it's more than that, I'm in denial, it's more than 15 years, uh, we find ourselves uh, working on or having worked on quite a quite a range of projects. So from that that very first building or two, we've managed to put ourselves out there not so much as a specialist of a particular type of building, but people that you might want to talk to if you've got a particular problem that needs solving. So that's been quite an interesting journey. I love it. Coming straight out the gate with a unique marketing strategy, entering the project into the heritage category, <laughs> that was a really smart idea. So so from that point onwards, did, did, did those sorts of projects, the more public projects with that heritage context, did those clients approach you and come to you off the back of that? Or was it something that set you up to go to them or participate in tenders or those sorts of things? I think what it did do, they, they didn't just start rolling. No, the phone wasn't uh, ringing off, off the, the hook, woodwork, was it? Just, no, the next morning. No, it certainly wasn't. <laughs> but it did give us, I suppose, something that we could put together and go out and talk to people about. So we did actually go and talk to uh, particular government authorities. It was the Sydney Harbour Foreshore Authority way back then. And we actually, what we found as we were young architects, emerging architects then, as opposed to a submerging architecture practice now, but people are willing to listen. People are willing to give you some time. And so, you know, two or three years out uh, working for ourselves and people said, yeah, sure, come up and show us what you can do. And then Nothing happened straight away after chatting to people, but eventually a phone call came through and asked us if we wanted to put in a proposal for a project and off it came. So it sounds like you actually approached them or you approached these, these councils or these organisations. Is that So that was something you mm. did back then. Is that still something that you and the studio do today as part of your business development process? We, at the moment, we have grand plans too, but we're okay. sort of busy enough at the moment where <laughs> we we uh, aren't doing it at the moment, but we're certainly cognizant of the fact that we have to do that. And so we're working with a few communications uh, consultants just to work on how we might pitch ourselves and how we might talk to potential clients should the opportunity arise. So I think that's been a really uh, important part of us evolving as architects and as an architecture practice, being able to talk about yourselves and what you do. This isn't something we were ever really very good at, but uh, we've forced ourselves to do that. And I think even that very early meeting that I was mentioning before, that took us a lot of time to sort of get off the courage, I suppose, to go and do it. But ever since then, we've been cognizant of 
just keeping on working on talking about ourselves, which is not something that falls easily to us, but we can do it now. Yeah. I suppose when you're, when you're going to approach somebody like that or thinking about maybe making that first connection and you're building up the courage to do that, is, a, is the right approach to just sort of play it pretty straight and just say, hey, we're interested in kind of catching up and having a chat and, you know, getting a sense of what you're doing and all that sort of stuff? Or did, did you approach it maybe in the past in perhaps a more creative or sort of left field kind of way that you wanted to talk about something specific or did you have any sort of interesting kind of way to, to stand out from, I guess, all of the people that are reaching out? I think um, just being upfront and honest about where we were as a practice. And I do think that people are very keen to see new practices come through and be involved in the conversation of, of, of our built environment. We, I think we had three projects, maybe four projects that we could have shown people back at that stage. And we just said, this is, this is what we've done. This is what we can do. And I think more importantly, we said, this is what we're interested in doing as well. So we said that we want to work on bigger projects. We explained the complexities of what they were for the projects that we had done. And, you know, it, as I said before, it didn't come off straight away. But we planted that seed in people's minds. And when an appropriate project came up, we got the phone call. We put in our proposal and it worked. And then so it just built up bit by bit. And each project grows the practice a little bit more. That's really great. And when, when you were talking about showing, you're having a few projects to show, do you mean show as in take people to the actual real buildings? Or was it just show and talk about in a more general sense? So here's our portfolio, that no, sort of thing. It, yeah, it was, a, it was a pretty basic PowerPoint presentation, okay. I think, was as I recall. Um, so it was just, we only had a few images of each project, so it wasn't a long meeting. Um, it was just uh, showing maybe half a dozen uh, images and drawings, maybe a few more, and it was enough to garner an interest. And I think people like to know the people that they're dealing with as well. So once you sit in a room with people and you have that face-to-face, -face, then there's a connection that's made. And that's, that's important. I think in many respects, that's more important than seeing a beautiful image uh, without context on the internet. Uh, you know, it makes it, it makes it meaningful. It makes it something that um, can be built on and something that's workable. I think that's a really important thing to reiterate that Making that connection in whatever way um, is, I, I suppose, the paramount to moving any practice forward. No matter how good your images are, they've got to be backed up by other things as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's that's kind of the public side. And I guess I'd love to get your sort of insights on that process a little bit in terms of that private side, some of the things that can kind of help with that, with that target audience. Yeah, I think it's just getting a few of your projects, no matter what kind they are out there in the public realm. So people see something about a particular project that they like and they go, oh, okay, that's, that's worth remembering. And then if you sort of crop up again a second time, then that helps again. If there's a little article that uh, appears uh, on a particular project, I think it's a series of smaller things that once they sort of see you once or twice in whatever, whatever media, 
um, it's kind of clicks and they go, oh, okay, what about these guys? So being having a sort of as regular a presence as possible is, is I think, something that's really helpful. That's not easy necessarily when you're starting out and you only have one or two projects. But I think there's different aspects of particular projects. There's not just one thing that you can look at. A particular example I'm thinking of at the moment is we, we work uh, quite closely with lots of consultants, but especially landscape architects, for example. So one particular project, it's had, uh, it's, it's had a life out there just looking at the building and now it's reappearing now in a sort of second time as the garden's grown up and become quite lush and lovely. So it's reappearing again. And suddenly there's, there's, there's a project that's out there, again, with us associated with it. And that's something that clicks again with people, I think. And, you know, it all adds up to a kind of aggregate that eventually someone might pick up the phone or send you an email and say, would you be interested in looking at our project? That's a very PR strategy in terms of the many different angles and different stories that can kind of spin <laughs> from one project and and these different things. So, yeah. so is that, that's obviously something that I think often gets brought up in terms of having a mix of types of projects in a studio. Part of the benefit of that is that you've got big and small, different sort of genres, if you want to call it, different timelines. So, you know, smaller things that fill in the gaps more regularly, then you've got these big things that take a little bit longer time to develop but and that, that can be healthy for making sure that you've got that consistency of being out there in the in the public realm as you said right that's yeah. something that is very as you pointed out very tricky to do in the beginning isn't it but it sounds like in terms of your story and Chris's story with the studio that initially awards were a big step up in terms of helping to have that project break through yeah. I guess looking over the years of your your studio entering awards you know, winning awards, shortlisted for awards today and then earlier on. Do you, do you think that maybe those awards were helpful in getting your work out there probably more so in in the beginning? Or do you, do you feel that at all stages they've, they've, they've had a similar kind of benefit as you've gone along? I think it's it's always beneficial, but particularly when you're starting out, because at least in our instance, we didn't know the processes, the mechanisms. We didn't know any who to talk to. So the I suppose the structure was there in the awards process to, to, to enter. And I suppose cross your fingers, hope that, that the judges see something that they like. And uh, I do think uh, myself now, having been on many different juries across different types of um, awards processes, Judges, no matter whether they're architects, interior designers, journalists, they're looking for new people. They're looking for new work. So I think, I think the awards process is a really good uh, springboard to introduce yourself to a wider audience. And yeah, it, it's, I think it's, it was a perfect first start for us. And we didn't get lucky the first time with the first project we entered in. It was, the, I think, the second or the third one that got anywhere. But then it was very helpful to sort of move up from that so you you know you you meet the jury and you meet the journalist who might have been on the jury and so you've suddenly got yourself in the mind of that person uh and then uh the awards are published and they do all that sort of thing and other people see it and someone might get on the on the phone from the i don't know the the age or the herald or something like that and they want to do a story they've got a particular angle journalists generally have an idea of the story they want to write before they approach you and then 
if there's something that they've seen in your awards entry, then they can take it and take it off on, on another different tangent as well. So it all builds slowly. But to come back to your um, question, I think the, the awards process is, is a great thing to get started with. Yeah, interesting. In terms of, go, I guess, going back to the angles a little bit or, or this idea of a project having different dimensions to it, editors and journalists having their own take on it. And later on, we're going to talk about your sort of experiences as a writer, yourself writing about architecture. But I guess in terms of um, you putting out your projects and then it's interpreted in all of these different ways by different types of publications and things like that. With your experience, do you try to get, a, get ahead of that a little bit or anticipate what's going to happen with the angle that might be taken on a project in the, that, when you're getting to that point where you're about to release it or you're writing your project description or that sort of thing? Or do you just try and give a very kind of objective, here's all the information about the project, have at it, I, th I think we try to we we try to set out as many different components or aspects of a project that we can. Uh, we try to tell a story, and I think telling a story, whether it's about yourself or the client or the practice or the location of the building, is very very important. It's coming back to making uh, making a connection with your audience. You don't necessarily know who your audience is going to be. That if you start to put a story out there that uh, people can connect with, then I think that's that's a critical part of of making that. I suppose getting that connection with with people so that they can go and expand upon whatever they need to do, whether they're clients or journalists or, or something else. So we're always, I suppose, honest in putting as much stuff out there, but we're definitely trying to create a narrative with everything that we put out there. It'd be good if we could kind of pick apart that creating a narrative or a story a little bit, because it's something that with your experience is, is pretty, probably pretty, pretty easy to do because you've done it so many times. And, uh, but, but I guess it's something that maybe some architects that are listening might struggle with a little bit to think about how do you, how do you sort of find, find that narrative or uncover that story, the story behind the story, what's going on in the project. You mentioned the client or the architect, but what, what would maybe be an example or, or is there anything that comes to mind that you could refer to in terms of how you were able to tease a story out of a project and a narrative and then, you know, use that to help promote the project? Yeah. And each, I think every, most projects, let's say every project has an interesting story of some sort to tell. And that's not necessarily to say that it's, it's interesting to everyone, but I'll say this is, this is kind of a, an, an obvious one, but our Hat Factory project, which was being published a bit in the last few years, the story that people were engaging with was the history of the building. I think <laughs> almost more so than the, the architecture that we overlaid <laughs> to the original. So just in two sentences, just uh, listing as many different things that we could garner as to what the building was, you know, it had... It was a hat factory, even though, well, actually it's called the hat factory, but we've actually found no evidence to suggest that it, actually hats were made there at any stage. But other things, it had been a mechanics, it had been a fantastic, apparently squatters who had lived there for 20 or 30 years had some fantastic parties. So you can start in two sentences, just talk about the, the way that this house started as a, I'm sorry, this building started as a hat factory, became a mechanics place. There was, there's been fires there, there's been parties and you start to, I suppose, create this story around the building 
that people sort of just stop and go, oh, okay, that's interesting. I might read the second sentence to this particular uh, story or whatever uh, entry on a website. And, you know, just open the door to people and then they'll, hopefully you'll get some people who will walk through and follow follow things down a little bit. But I think, you know, any, if well, that's a pretty obvious that, one and it that, did have that a one's, uh, Yeah, that's a real. <laughs> <laughs> You're not always blessed with that, I suppose, necessarily. Yeah. But but another one where, you know, it, would, uh, <clears throat> it was working in a conservation area and we, uh, there's a lot of Marseille terracotta roof tiles as part of the palette of this garden suburb. And we called that the project a house with tiles on it. Not particularly interestingly, but it kind of, it's, it, it started people thinking, well, what is that? What is a house with tiles on it? And then we started talking about the idea of stitch, stitching streetscapes back together. We started talking about the way that the materials have been used for a long time in this particular uh, area. So just little snippets that just get people interested in small ways. And as I said before, hopefully get them through the door and get them interested in more detail about what you're doing. Yeah, that's interesting. So you've got you've got sort of these little threads. There's a story of the materials, this bigger picture story that's larger than the project or it sort of comes before the project. And then you're talking about stitching streets back together. And when you're when you're saying it, I'm thinking, oh, how did they get torn apart? You know, they start, they start asking these kinds of questions. <laughs> what happened with these streets? You know, so there's, so it's mm. interesting that you're choosing maybe elements from the project that there's a, maybe a bigger picture or, or, or a story that, that extends beyond the project that you're kind of tying it into a little bit or suggesting at. Yeah. And I think the story, stories are important. And I think often as um, architects, we can forget that because we're all, many of us are more visual people rather than words people, but I'll, I'll perhaps put it out there and suggest that most people are more word-oriented people than visually-oriented people. And so just having that story and that narrative is really important to, I suppose, to make yourself interesting to people, to make people think, I might look a bit further into this organisation, I might want to meet these people. Yeah, the, the words and the stories are important. I wonder if having interesting stories to tell gives you a bit of a competitive advantage in a in a very visually oriented market, as you're sort of saying. You know, earlier when you were talking about getting your projects out there regularly and building up this this sort of brand awareness and people seeing your work a few times over over time. When you were bringing that up, I was sort of thinking, oh, you know, they're seeing you, but they're also seeing lots and lots of other architects too. And I was thinking it, it must be, it's sometimes difficult from the client's perspective to like what, what draws you towards a particular practice that makes you reach out to them? Yeah, absolutely. I think when I suppose nearly all architects are sort of struggling with how to put their identity as designers out there and uh, having worked on a lot of different projects, well, we didn't think we had a house style for want of a better term. Uh, that's, and so we're just trying to, you know, put the words together. And this was in particular uh, relation to the website. We're trying to describe ourselves and our approach, which is a not uncommon thing to do. And we started talking about ourselves as a modern-ish practice, um, trying to describe how we have modern, we have modernist sensibilities in some respects, but not necessarily. We would by, by no means call ourselves uh, modernists. I suppose. And it's interesting that quite a few people, when they did end up talking to us, 
came back to that one word, that that word modernish, it's not even a word, started, that's, that was the thing that piqued their interest. And that was a point of difference between ourselves and other practices that they were talking to. But it made us realize that the words are important. Well, we always knew that the story was important, but we paid more attention to how we present ourselves across different mediums. It's not just a matter of putting the Squarespace site together and whacking a whole lot of images on it. It's, it's about creating the story about the projects, the practice, and the individuals involved in that practice as well. Yeah. I mean, when people talk about trying to clarify their message or we need to simplify our message or something like that, I think, I think that choice of modern-ish and then having a paragraph that describes that is probably what that means in terms of clarifying your message. You're getting it to this really distilled down simple thing because as an architect, you can say a lot of things about your work and about your studio. And sometimes it's tempting to mm. just try and say all of them. And you end up with an about page that is trying to get about 15 different messages across. And it can be tough to prioritize yeah. and simplify it down to the point where you can capture what your brand is about and have people coming to you and saying, oh, that really stood out to me and resonated with me. What made you confident that that was the message to put out there? I think um, how we ended up with that word I can't quite really remember, but getting the feedback that we did made us realize, and this is something that yourself and many other people have said to architects before, to have that Welsh and Major are an award-winning multidisciplinary design-oriented practice start to their to the words on 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 their website, which we did too. We had that, I think almost exactly that. We didn't know what else to put on there. So when we started writing and we got this feedback. It wasn't like um, us finding out something new, but it made us, it, it did give us clarification that we have to pay attention to how we talk about ourselves and just be honest about what you do. Don't try and, ex don't try and make yourselves uh, bigger than you are necessarily, because what you're really doing is just diluting the story so that you're not really relevant to anything. So whilst we weren't being particular about any type of project or typology, we, we did realize that creating a story, no matter what it was, was something that gave people uh, something that they could hook, hook into, that they could think about. And if it worked for them, maybe think about getting in contact with us. It's, it's not for everyone. You can't be a universal uh, designer. I don't think it's you can appeal to everyone. So just be true to what, what you want to do. And it's a big enough world. Someone will find you eventually. And luckily it's worked out. Yeah. You know, in terms of modern-ish, when I'm thinking about that statement and thinking about that way of positioning your brand, it, it has an, a little, maybe an element of challenging the status quo, maybe. There's a, bit, a little bit of rebelliousness about it. But it's interesting that your approach was to, to almost give that group of people that shared a similar view of architecture to you, to give them maybe a bit of a title that they could use to describe themselves in a way and go, yep, that's it. That's me. I fit with that sort of description. Yeah. I think, I think when you, you know, we're, I, we're talking residential clients are here, mm. I think here in particular, you, you think about the amount of work, like good work that's being published out there and you know, it's changing daily. And, you know, the websites that we all love to go back and have a, have a look at uh, every couple of days, 
there's hundreds of good projects that are that are being published every day. So it's would be really confusing if you're trying to think of who you might want to work through, work with on your project. I mean, there's the obvious things like you might narrow it down to there's a particular, you know, there particular area, particular part of the world that you live in, that kind of cuts out a lot of people, I suppose, but not all. You might have a few things that you're looking at in particular, a particular material or a particular type of structure. So you might narrow it down again, but inevitably or almost inevitably, any potential client's probably talking to three or four different architects. If they don't know any architects, then they're coming in cold. And so how do you, how do you sort of make that final decision or get that sort of little bit extra to actually give them a call. I think the words are important and most people will respond to words as well as images. It's almost easier to respond to words, Mm. I think, in many respects. So if you can have something like uh, a description or a particular aspect of your work that you can make into three or four words into a line quite succinct, I think that's almost more important in many respects than that wow image. If you like what you're hearing so far, please make sure to share this episode with colleagues you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave me a five-star review on the Apple Podcast or Spotify app? Every review makes it easier for people to find the show and hear what my amazing guests have to say. I also love hearing your questions and I'm planning more listener Q&A episodes. So please send your questions in to questions at vanityprojects.com and I'll answer them on the show. So recently, you went through a pretty major rebrand in terms of refreshing the Welsh, a major brand, the website. A lot of practices are out there sort of thinking about, do we need a rebrand? Do we need a new website? And it lingers in the back of people's minds. And so it'd be good to get into maybe the process a little bit and and then any any sort of benefits that you've seen from that. But I guess just starting, what drove you guys to to consider getting a rebrand to go through the process and the time involved? What, what, what were you aware that something needed to change, or what what was your sort of motivation? Yeah, I think uh, our old website was perhaps looking a little tired. We had a whole lot of extra projects we wanted to put onto it, so. You know, architects generally like to fiddle with things anyway and always looking to redesign. So we were thinking about how we might approach this. But I think more critically, what what we realized was that we can't do everything ourselves anymore. And so we didn't have the time. We finally realized that we probably didn't have the skill sets to do it effectively either. So we actively started talking to people about how we might not necessarily change ourselves or the story that we were delivering, but how could we optimize our skill sets, our projects, and I suppose our experience, not just Chris and myself, but the dozen of ourselves now. So it was important to put that out there. So we started talking to different people. We started talking mm-hmm. to yourself and you gave us a, ver- a fantastic quite forthright review of where our website I ripped apart stood. your old website. Um, I guess that was a helpful kick up the did. butt to, to build a new uh, one. No, it, it absolutely. And so it, it really was. And it, it was like sort of the scales falling from our eyes and we, we finally saw, oh, that's what people think of our website. Yeah. That, you know, little things, just, you know, the words. You, you, you get too close to yeah. these things. And so we 
started talking to communications consultants. We started talking to uh, graphic designers and we eventually came up with uh, people that we were really, really happy with, with uh, a company group. And uh, we moved forward from there and they put forward some options for us as a sort of rebrand and a website and also gave us a framework for presenting things. So even little things like a template to put together a proposal that you put together as part of a public submission or expression of interest or a request for tender or something like that. And they came up with something that uh, we really, really liked and it's been very, very well received. And as a, as a sort of graphic entity, it was quite exciting and new. A lot of people liked it. But more interestingly for us, it gave us the framework to start thinking about how we present ourselves. And it actually changed how we put together the story of our practice. Even having to write it down in particular formats, it changed the way we, we approached different potential clients. And it seemed to have been quite successful in quite a few areas as well. So it was a really important thing for us to what, do. What were a couple of the sort of more fundamental changes that happened because of it in, in terms of how you present yourself and approach clients, as you were just saying, I'd be interested to know kind of maybe some specific things that you've noticed or that have changed. Well, I think we're all designers. There's a dozen different designers in the practice and everyone likes to sort of put their mark on things and change things. What it gave us was a structure, a cohesive structure and a story that we all were on board with. We talked to everyone in the practice when the potential options were being put forward to us by our, our graphic designers. And it gave everyone, I suppose, a methodology to explain themselves with, whether it was the concept drawings that you're first putting forward to a client, whether it was an expression of interest to a potential client, or even if it was just a recording of a finished project that was going up onto the website. It gave us sort of structure and cohesiveness and how that we told the story of ourselves to other yeah, people. Yeah, that's interesting. So it, it became at every single touch point, there was a, a more of an exercise in actually planning out what's the optimal way to do that and how does that fit into the entire journey more kind of cohesively, right? Yeah. So it was, it was interesting. We didn't realize this was going to happen, but once we, once we had this, I suppose, this mechanism to talk about ourselves with it was really effective in getting getting our story and our message out there and it seemed to have proved successful as well so we, we picked up some very interesting projects it, it, in terms of just so that people because that sounds like you you know in terms of you got different options with your designer it sounds like you went straight for the the first class you know cadillac option in terms of everything <laughs> we're gonna get everything done we're gonna you know completely turn this place upside down and sort of rebrand from the ground up, looking at every process and all of that sort of stuff. So it's a very, very thorough process. Just to give a rough idea for people that might be thinking their practice has reached that stage, can we have a really loose idea of what this sort of rebranding process cost and maybe the elements, if you feel comfortable, <laughs> just giving an idea, just, just in very, very loose terms, um, to give people an idea of what that top end top to bottom sort of branding looks like and what to maybe aspire to one day for their practice. Yeah, we, we haven't gone top to bottom. We were given the different options on how far to, to take it. And we, of course, wanted the Rolls-Royce option, but we couldn't afford it all straight away. But so we took most of it on board, I think. We, we, we 
got stuck into most of it and others, other components we will do soon, hopefully, if, if everything goes to plan. But it's probably, it, it, it could be anything depending on who you're working with for a, like a twenty to $50,000 exercise. And you think, oh, that's too expensive. That's nuts. But if you put it into context of if this gives you one project, if this brings you one project in, that's probably, you know, that's, that's the fees for one or two projects yep. or half a project yeah. depends, you know. But if it, so if it brings you two, if it brings you two or three projects in or helps you to, then it's starting to, it's, it's starting to yep. make you money. And we were talking earlier about how hard it is to find a point of difference, right? So it's, uh, it beca- branding becomes a point of difference as well because it is, you know, it is a challenging process to get right. And yeah, it, it definitely sets you apart from, uh, from the other maybe four or five architects that people are considering. But, but you mentioned there that you had broken it into different phases and that there might be other elements to it that are potentially coming down the track. So, so what, what did you sort of prioritize? Well, we know, we already know what you prioritize first in terms of the website and some of those more client facing sales and communication, you know, documents and stuff like that. What are the elements that maybe haven't been done yet? Or what, what are you planning to do in the future when the budget's together for those elements? Yeah. What, what sort of ideas are there? I think there's, there's a whole lot of different, I suppose, collateral that could be added to the mix that we could, that we could do. Uh, expanding the scope of the website a little. I mean, video content's becoming more and more important to people and how they get their stories across at the moment. And I suppose that's been a relatively quick uh, metamorphosis. I mean, it was, it was fine to have uh, just a good solid set of images mm. a year ago, maybe. This is, I'm feeling I might be a bit late to it, but all of a sudden, uh, no video content is more important as you try to capture, capture the interest of the people out there. So being uh, being more flexible to take on that sort of content, I think is important. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of, I suppose, add-ons that we could look at, but I think the, the, the first thing was the re- let's call it the rebranding. There was a graphic identity that came with that. That's important and interesting in itself. But what it did was it it made us go through the process of identifying what we were good at and not so good at. And it was that was done through the eyes of, of a third party as well. And so that's an interesting journey to, to go on. It was a little bit confronting in some areas that this was how we presented to people and we thought, oh, no, that's not us. But on reflection, yes, it was. So we realised that the, the, the identity that, that we're now putting forward isn't to everyone's taste, but we never will be, you know. But I think we're comfortable with how we're sort of putting ourselves out in the world at the moment. And it gives us room to expand into other things in the future, should that happen. Yeah, and I'm always going to ask the difficult questions because you're, you're so honest, David. So in terms of the, the parts that you <laughs> sort of realized or discovered were maybe more weaknesses in terms of what you were putting out there as a brand, like just, just what, 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 been, what, what sort of things were, did, did you feel that were maybe not your strengths or, or, or previously were, 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 not, you know, were not really helping? I think what we weren't very good at was we want, we want to work on all sorts of different projects. And when, and in doing that, I think our message became a little bit insipid. It was sort of like, you know, the yeah. award-winning design-oriented practice kind of thing. But seeing ourselves through the third party made us identify the good things that we had done and the good things that we were doing and gave us the confidence to 
put those things forward and also put ourselves forward. Like suddenly we're having to put pictures of ourselves on our website as well. That's that's terrifying. I hate looking at those images, but of myself, everyone yeah. else is fantastic. <laughs> but it's yeah, it's a it's a, a thing that we deliberately didn't do before. And suddenly it it's it's obvious. People want to know who they're potentially talking to or working with. And so just put a photo yeah. out there. And it's, you know, they don't know who that person is in the photo necessarily. But it shows that there are actually human beings, not sort of sort of stilted, cliched designers sitting behind the beautiful photographic image that there's people here. I think that resonates with a lot of resonate not resonates, <laughs> resonates <laughs> with a lot of people. Yeah, and that's actually now taking me back to actually initially looking at your website. I remember when when you got me to do that, I I hadn't actually met with you yet or got to know you or Chris. Yeah. All I had to go off was a couple of dodgy looking iPhone photos of of you two on your website. <laughs> and I had absolutely no idea who I was dealing with from a personality standpoint. I didn't know anything about your studio, your company, and I was trying so hard to work it out and I just couldn't find any details. So I just had to try and imagine what you'd be mm. like and then sort of work off that, which is a, is a good thing when you're reviewing a website, when you're trying to be that in the shoes of the potential client, but bloody hell, it was really difficult, but it's, it's night and day now with your website, you get such a, a stronger sense of who, who are these people? What are they, what are they like? What's their personality? What does their studio feel like? You get such a such a better read on 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 you as a company now yeah it's it seems that it's still we're still not 100 percent happy with our website we'll yeah. always keep wanting to change things but it seems so obvious now that if you're going to you know spend a lot of time and money with these people with these pretend, with these architects and it's a hard to pick up the phone and talk to these people if you don't know anything about them so it's just a simple thing just getting making it a little bit easier by being able to picture these are the people we're talking to. It's a simple thing and it was such a difficult thing in our heads for so long. I'm interested in talking about this other really interesting side of your career and that's as an architectural writer and I sort of discovered your architectural writing as this process I went through. I wanted to cattle, create, a, create a sort of a data analysis of all of the major architecture magazines and who were the photographers and how many architects were getting published in which magazines. I was just trying to collect some data. And I was just shocked by how often I saw your name coming up as the writer for basically any, <laughs> almost any project that popped up in New South Wales. I would almost be able to put money on it that, that you had contributed the words for it. And I was very surprised because having worked together, I, I, I didn't know that that was really something that you did. And it's uh, a bit of, I, I guess, a bit of an interesting aspect to what you do. But I'm interested just briefly in terms of what what role does architectural writing play for you? Is it is it is it something that you... <laughs> Is there a, a professional side to it in terms of in terms of benefiting your practice, or is it just something that you do as a way of contributing and being involved in things? I guess like, tell us a little bit more about the the writing side of of, of your work life. Yeah, uh, the answer is yes to all of those things you mentioned. It's it's something that I just love to do to start with. If nothing else, I get to have a sticky beak at other people's projects. So I get to go and look at things. But I think it's also, I, I really enjoy the process of uh, sitting down and thinking about what's important, 
about architecture and about these particular architects' work and also how it might be presented to other people as well. I'm thinking about how would I best explain this particular project to a layperson in 800 words. So the, the photography is there, but that extra connection, I think, in word form is, is important and trying to distill uh, what I think the architect's message is to a general audience. So it's generally the way I like to write about it is to understand the story, a backstory to sort of get people into the project and then trying to work people, explain the project physically to run people through the project and explain how things are working, describing in three dimensions how the project might work. And then there's various offshoots from that, but that's the kind of framework I set set a, a story up with. If it's for someone like Architecture Australia, where it is an informed audience, where it is generally architects, it's different. But I think just giving someone the map, a word map to work through the photographs, I think is an important thing to do as a fellow architect and also to sort of expand people's uh, design knowledge, I suppose, as well. I don't know if they read the words necessarily. They might just look at the photos, but that's what I try to do. That's great. I guess people are always sort of interested in learning more about the process of how kind of how the sausage gets made in terms of, you know, architectural magazines. <clears throat> and there's sometimes a bit of confusion about the role that the writers play or, or how they're involved in the process. And and obviously, given that you've got so much experience in that area, both on the side of having your work featured, but also contributing your writing, be interested in particular looking at how an editor might put together a, a magazine in terms of the timeline when they would involve someone like yourself to start thinking about the project. Because oftentimes an editor will go to an architect, yeah, we'll put you in the magazine, but it's going to be nine months away. And, they, and they're kind of going, well, why, why, you know, why do I have to wait so long? What's, what's the deal with that? But obviously there's a lot that happens behind the scenes in getting someone like yourself to write an article. But I guess just maybe a bit of an overview just quickly of, of sort of the steps that happen from, from when someone first, re when an editor, editor first reaches out to you and says, hey, we have this project that we think would be amazing for you to write for. What does that look like from your, from your end? Well, I think the, the editorial teams have chosen their projects that they want to put forward. Some publications have are working an issue around a particular theme. Others are less constrained by that. But once they've decided that they want to publish, then they'll consider who is who they might think is a good fit as a writer <clears throat> for that particular project. So if, it, if it's lucky enough that it's me, lucky enough for me, not necessarily for the architect involved, we get in touch, always want to go and have a look at a project just for, our, you know, even I always say a half hour, but it's mm -hmm. never half an hour to get an understanding of how you know, how this particular work, this architecture is arranged. The photos are one thing, the drawings are another, but, you know, there's those hundreds of different kind of, uh, I suppose, reactions that any individual experiences when they work into, walk into any space. So a photograph or a drawing can't capture that. So I suppose that's where I see my role is to try and bring some of the feeling into what you've experienced physically into in a building into the writing. So I will get my words together and then it goes through a sub-editing process, but it's still probably another four to six months from when I do my bit to when it gets sort of published in print or online. Mm. So 
it's still a very long process, six to nine months. Possibly it depends on uh, how much works out there in any given year, but you know, it's it's getting harder and harder for print media media to make hmm. make a dollar. And so I think they're trying to, you know, they've got limited resources. Good good publications take time to put together. And yeah, it's it's a, it's a long way out. And I know too, as someone who's trying to get published in in these publications, it's frustrating to sit there on your hands and wait before you see something in print. In terms of that that process, having as a as a marketing consultant, having spent lots of time either sitting with clients putting together <coughs> media kits and project descriptions and all that sort of stuff, or or, or just you know having them spend lots of their time doing it. I sort of wonder sometimes, does that stuff get read the way that we think it does or get used the way that we think it does? I'd be interested, you know, you, <laughs> I get the feeling that in your case, it's probably more gut instinct and, you know, showing up on site with your experience and just going, hey, look, I get this project and maybe I'll ask some questions about it. But for you personally, when you're writing articles, do you ever refer to any of the kind of written material that the architect provides to the process? And do you do interviews and things like that? Or, or what's what does any of that stuff actually help? Or do you feel like it's maybe a bit unnecessary? It's not unnecessary at all. I think it's important, like in my case, support yep. information. Yes, I always go and interview the architect, but I'm trying to get, you know, firsthand, almost off the cuff, felt responses from the architect to inform how I might write a story. So to have that well-considered press release architect statement as support is an important thing for a writer because that tells you how the designer sees the project, what the priorities are. There might be something in the in the chat that we have on site that's missed. So it, I think it's important. It's part part of putting the story of your work together. <clears throat> so it's not dismissed by any means, but in my instance, I try to not refer to it up front so I can make up my own mind. But when I say make up my own mind, I'm not a critic necessarily mm. at all. It's a whole other avenue of discussion and writing, architectural criticism. That's that's not what I think of, for the most part my writing's about. It's about perhaps putting forward the architect's intent. I've only got 800 words, so just, just trying to explain the building as best I can as a support to the overall story, which is photographs and words. Interesting. I'd love to ask more questions, David, but we're at the, we are at the end of our time and I, I want to let you go and get back to the office and do what you need to do. So we'll, we'll finish up there. But thank you so much for coming on and being so honest and sharing everything you've got to got to say from your ex many experiences in the industry. So thank you very much again for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Dave. It's awesome. been fun. That was my conversation with David Welsh from Welsh & Major. If you'd like to learn more about David and the studio, you can visit welshmajor.com or follow Welsh and Major on Instagram. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.